Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning. It is great to be here. West Virginia is just like Florida, except it's all mountains. We are totally in the Appalachian Mountains. But if you flattened us out on the lower end, we'd flatten out about the same length as Florida is. We'd be about the same size. Uh, I'm from a town of 750 people and a county of 7,500 people, fifth largest land-wise in the state. Um, it is a, a beautiful area. Anyone that wants to know about the area can ask Lawrence. His dad lived in our area and developed a golf course in our area and other pl- things in our area um, for which we are very grateful. Uh, it, it is very different than here, but it is so good to be with you. I feel like uh, yesterday we had a breakfast and some of you were able to come. And, and afterwards I told Aaron, I said, I just felt like, now I feel like we're part of the family. I feel like we're home. So it is so good to be here it is my first year overseeing our Mid-South region, of which you all have joined. Uh, Mickey Connolly, who has led that region for, for about 10 years, is one of my closest friends. He has come to Franklin for 30 years and spoken at our church. And uh, our church began, uh, became a part of Sovereign Grace in 1987, so we've been there for a number of years. And we began as a church. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary uh, last year. And God has been very kind to us, and we are very, very grateful. Uh, This morning, I'm going to speak on a topic that's going to be a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to talk about trusting God in the darkness, in the difficult times. It's from Isaiah 50.10. I do want to mention one more thing. Thank you to the worship team that led us this morning. You all do a great job, and the worship leader. And you who sang that special, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for using your obviously gifted voice to honor the Lord. It was really wonderful. It, it ministered to my soul. It really did. So let's look at Isaiah fifty ten, trusting God in the darkness. We're going to read this one verse. This is going to be a topical message. It's a little different than the way that I normally preach. It's different than how you normally receive preaching. It's going to be expository, but it's going to be more topical, kind of a biblical theology on suffering, uh, theodicy, if you want to use that term. Um, But we're going to jump off from Isaiah 50.10. It's going to assume some knowledge of Scripture. Uh, Let's read Isaiah 50.10 together, and then we'll get going. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? That's the question. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let me read those last two lines again. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So the subject Aaron has asked me to speak on today is battling spiritual doubt. And as I said, by necessity, it will be a topical message. And I'm assuming some knowledge of Scripture. Also be sharing personally out of my own life regarding my own struggles through a season of doubt. And what brought an end of doubt for me? Now, we know that spiritual doubt can have many causes. Some struggles with doubt are self-induced, such as by neglecting the spiritual disciplines of prayer or the study of God's Word or gathering together corporately is another way we can kind of drift into doubt. We don't gather together as Hebrews encourages us to do. But the doubt that I want to talk about today is spiritual doubt that is due to intense or prolonged trials. The doubts that we face that are caused by suffering And I would imagine in a group this size, if we went down the roads, there are those, some in this group that have experienced intense 
or significant trials with great fortitude through your lives. And I'm sure we can learn much from you. I'm also aware that one lone message will not say everything that can be said on this topic. So I'd refer you to your pastors about with questions. For the Christian faith, faith in the Lord only comes down to these two fundamental issues. Number one, is there a God? Is there a sovereign God who rules this world? That's the first thing. And then secondly, is this God trustworthy? Is this God so thoroughly good and so personally involved in this world that I can completely trust him with my life? That's what faith is all about. It comes down to those two things. Is there a God and can I trust him? Right? Hebrews eleven six says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must first believe that he exists, believes that there's a God. And secondly, that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him, that he is good. That's Hebrews eleven six. So the existence of a sovereign God and the character of that God are the foundations to a vital living faith. Now let me tell you about my personal struggle with doubt. It revolved around two main issues culminating in a particular event. And it's a little bit historical. It's been just a few years ago. First of all, we have four daughters and one son in our family. We had three girls, had a son, thought, okay, had another girl. Four girls and one son. As they grew older, I struggled for years watching my two youngest daughters live unmarried through their 20s and into their 30s. And that was a difficult challenge for me. They did fine in many ways, and they moved on in life and all that, but they desired to be married. They were both Christians who followed God faithfully in relationships through their teen years in college and beyond, yet they remain unmarried into their 30s. One of the two got married this past year. Uh, in February at 37, the other one is 32 and still unmarried. And that has been a challenge in our lives. That has been a challenge for me personally. Lord, seems like they're doing it all right. We're praying, yet they remained unmarried. Then secondly, the second struggle was this. Alongside the struggle of the fact, there was a long season of deaths and funerals. We had nine family members and friends who passed away over a 16-month period Um, we're in a small church in a small town and uh, so you know everyone so over 16 months nine 16 months nine family members and friends passed away including one two period two week period where my father and two first cousins died and I did all the funerals except for my dad all the others died earlier in life and some quite tragically so we went through that season and that was challenging But the culmination, however, was the suffering my sister, my younger sister, next to my wife would be the lady who I'm closest to in my life. Um, She experienced suffering after the death of her 26-year-old son. She had five children. She was told the news after she'd gone to bed and was awakened at midnight Christmas Eve. And the timing and the manner in which she had to be told was truly horrible. It was painful. And it was not the first heartbreaking news she'd ever experienced in her life. She experienced other life-altering tragedies. And here's the issue for me. Here's what made it so hard for me. She is one of the most godly, sacrificial, compassionate people that I know. And that wouldn't just be my testimony. That would be the folks that knew her as well, know her as well. She'd followed the Lord faithfully since a young age. She'd prayed for her children. She was a godly mother 
and she has no assurance that her son was a believer when he passed away. Suffering in the accompanying darkness comes unannounced into our lives, does it not? We don't know when it's coming. Some suffering is immediate and acute. Other suffering is chronic and drawn out over months or even years. We experience sickness and death, loss. We experience family trials. Children rebel or drift from the faith. We experience unfulfilled hopes and desires. We go through life sometimes with seemingly unanswered prayers. There are cumulative effects of setbacks in our lives and betrayals and disappointments. Sometimes there's disconnects between labors and the fruits of our labors. That was one of the challenges for me of becoming a pastor. I was a dentist before as a pastor. You filled the tooth, the person was better, they went home, they paid you, end of the story. As a pastor, it doesn't work that way at all. It doesn't seem like. So there's a seemingly disconnect for us many times in our lives with the labors we put into things and the fruitfulness that we see. And then age sometimes increases that struggle as the sun sets on earlier hopes. All these things are challenges in our life, and all these take toll on our faith. Yet we read in this verse, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. In that dark time, we're to trust in the name of the Lord. The question is, how do we do that? How do we trust in the name of the Lord while walking in darkness with no light? How can we trust God as faithful when our immediate circumstances seem to scream out, he might just be the exact opposite. And you can't fake trust, can you? You can't fake it. You can put on a show for a while, but you can't fake it deep down. So the question is, how does one fight doubt and find faith while walking in darkness? And if you're here this morning, you're in the middle of darkness, I pray that this will particularly speak to you. And if you're younger here and you've not faced this, I pray that you will write some notes C.J. once said, if we live long enough, we will all suffer. And this is true. So today we're going to look at three things. Number one, we're going to look at the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. We're going to look at doubt as the suspension between faith and unbelief. And then we're going to look at darkness, faith, and the name of the Lord. So the stark reality of inexplicable suffering, doubt as the suspension between faith and unbelief. And then we're going to look at darkness, faith, in the name of the Lord. So let's pray. I'm going to ask God to help me to communicate clearly to you and that we might all learn and grow from this. Father, thank you for your word that is truth. And Lord, we, you tell us to do this in Isaiah 50:10, And I help you pray that you will help me to share clearly that we all might grow in trusting you even in the midst of darkness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Help us to understand doubt and how we might move beyond doubt in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's look at the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. Here's a truth in the fallen world. In spite of the presence of many joys and blessings, and we all experience them, do we not? It's a joy to gather together here this morning. It's a joy to sing praises to the Lord. It's a joy. So many things in our lives are joys and blessings. At the same time, our world is filled with darkness. We know that. We're in a world that is filled with darkness. And we know the reason. Ever since the fall in the garden, the life that we live in, that live in this fallen world, is a fallen life. We are living in a fallen world. And part of the church life, as the new members join here today, is assisting one another 
through the challenges of this fallen world. That's how we care for one another. We provide comfort and care. We counsel, make connections with God's word when people are suffering. If sin is clearly the cause, we share about reaping and sowing because sometimes our suffering is a result of sin. And we pray for repentance. We share about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We remind people that sometimes God even uses suffering to help us become more like him. Matter of fact, he often does that. He uses us to draw, draw us back to him at times. Sometimes he disciplines us. Hebrews, Hebrews 12 says, for our good that we might share in his holiness. But what about the suffering that has no clear reason or purpose that we can see? What about that suffering that comes in our life that we say, I don't understand that. What about the intense pain that seems both inexplicable and fruitless? This morning, got up, looked at my text message. I had a text message, looked at it. A young family in our church, three young girls in high school and junior high, elementary school. She's a school secretary. He's a uh, he takes care of facilities for the schools in our counties. Their house burnt down last night, lost everything, got out with the clothes on their back. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? How do you explain intense pain and inexplicable suffering? Well, that was the reality in the book of Job. We know that, don't we? Job 1.1 begins this way. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was, and you'd love to have this said about you, that man was blameless and upright. Wouldn't you like that to be said about you? He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Yet Job suffered terribly. And Job never knew why. We get insights reading the story, but he didn't know why. Job's friends, and you know about Job's three friends, they had no category for inexplicable, unexplained suffering. For them, if a world is ruled by a sovereign and just God, life then must be solely a matter of direct cause and effect. You reap what you sow. And in their minds, this was true for all suffering. It's the retribution principle that is, we reap what we sow. And with that one trick category for suffering, their words and counsel became, as you know, thrusting swords of accusation that merely increased the suffering for righteous Job. That's what kind of counselors they were. They had to find a reason for suffering, for Job's suffering in Job's life. And they looked for it. And if you read that book, you will see all kinds of accusations coming at Job. Well, it must have been this. Well, it was probably that. Repent, Job. And the reason they did that, because they knew deep down with their understanding of life, reaping and sowing, they had to find something in Job. Because they knew Job's suffering, if unexplained, was a threat to them. Their whole worldview is extinct because if God allowed suffering in Job's life without clear cause, that meant what happened to Job might also happen to them. And then how could they deal with such a God? Right? That's where they were at. So they could, if you could hear him saying, how are you doing today, Job? Let me tell you how you're doing just as you deserve. Repent and be restored. That was their worldview. Repent and be restored. 
Because Job's friends have grasped that unless God is just and fair, and this is true, the moral fabric of the universe will disintegrate. Now, Elizabeth Elliot, many of you have heard, most of all of you have probably heard of her. In her authorized biography, which is entitled Becoming Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, you know, her husband was martyred along with four other men in 1957 in Ecuador. She was a young wife, had a young, had a, a young daughter, I think 18, 16, 18 months old when her husband died. And here's what she wrote in that book regarding her suffering and the counselors that she listened to as she came to the United States, back to the U.S. Because it, it was known worldwide what had taken place. It was scandalous. These five young men go to Ecuador to try to evangelize this tribe, and they are all killed. Young men in their 20s. When she came back to the U.S., here's what she wrote. Upon returning to churches in the U.S. after her husband was martyred, Elizabeth Elliot detested the shallow, God-justifying platitudes of many who sought to comfort her in her suffering. Their answers, like the answers of Job's friends, were often a means to prop up and protect their own flimsy faith that couldn't stand the test of inexplicable suffering. You see, people have to find answers. We do that too, don't we? We want to know, okay, there must have been something because... That's what was going on here. And people were given all these reasons. Well, it's probably for good for the gospel's sake and all this. And God probably, they gave her all these kinds of answers. And she said she, she couldn't stand it because she said because if they felt they did this because if this important suffering could happen to her for no apparent reason, it could happen to them. They couldn't deal with that. They had to think up reasons to justify God. Christopher Ash writes these words in his commentary on Job. We need to be honest and face the kind of world we live in. Why does God allow these things? Why does he do nothing to put these things right? And why, on the other hand, do people who could care less about God and justice thrive? You ever ask that question? So Christopher Ash writes that on his Job and commentary. And the prophet Jeremiah also struggled with the same questions when he wrote, in Jeremiah 12, 12, 1, listen to this. He says, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. You're always righteous. Then he follows up with, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Finally, Elizabeth Elliot sums up her struggle with suffering and understanding it, inexplicable suffering this way. She just says it like this. I've read somewhere that anyone who is not confused is very badly informed. It's just confusing. When you see inexplicable suffering, it's just confusing. And if you're not confused, you're very badly informed. Here's the truth. At times, God allows intense, inexplicable suffering in our lives. And he has not told us why. Told us why. The suffering has nothing to do with sin. The suffering is not directly proportional to our need for spiritual growth. In other words, Job-like suffering is more common than we think. There's lots of suffering that happens, folks, that God does not tell us why. And this type of suffering brings questions into our lives about God's goodness, does it not? 
When we don't understand, we question God's goodness, which then brings doubt into play in our lives. Now, we're going to go, we're going down here, aren't we? You say, you're taking us down. Well, I'll bring you back up, but we're going to go down further with this, okay? This is a reality of life. I didn't believe, I probably didn't believe this in my 20s and maybe not in my 30s. God has brought me to a place where I realize, yes, there's times when I can't explain the suffering as a pastor, as a person with my sister. I cannot explain that to my sister. God could have saved her son. I could tell you the circumstances by which he died, but I won't. It didn't have to go that way. And that kind of suffering, it does. It brings questions about God's goodness. So let's talk about doubt and the suspension between faith and unbelief and why we struggle so much as Christians, okay? First point is this. Deep and prolonged suffering is uniquely challenging for the Christian. It's harder for us than for the world around us. Why? Because we believe God is sovereign. Do we not? He's sovereign overall. And we know that everything that comes to us must first come through his will, via his will. It's mysterious, but he is sovereign. And there's mystery here. We believe that. The world, when they see stuff like this, suffering like this and it gets so bad, they just say, well, stuff happens. We, we can't just say stuff happens. We believe in a sovereign God. And the world doesn't have to deal with that kind of knowledge. So Christopher Ash writes these words. There is a pain for believers that gives suffering a unique sharpness. Suffering is the common experience of the human race. And yet suffering touches the believer with a sharper and uniquely piercing pain. The worshiper truly believes God is sovereign. He or she really believes that the living God is in control of the world. And so when suffering comes, it must be God who ultimately sends it. After all, he is in control, is he not? It is God who is in some sense doing the hurting. Boy, that's right on the edge, isn't it? And then he writes, it's the other side of it. And yet, surely God is just, isn't he? This is the added pain for the believer living in a world of undeserved suffering. For undeserved suffering is a threat to the moral foundations of the universe. Either God is in control or he is not fair. And that causes the believer deep and sharp perplexity. He continues, there are believers with a clear conscience No hidden sin, trusting in God for forgiveness and walking in the light with him, and yet who suffer terribly. It is a problem, but it is a problem for us to notice that it is a problem only for the believer. If you're struggling deeply because of suffering that you don't understand why, it is harder for us as believers than for the world around us. They can just say it's by chance, things happen, all this. We can't. We have to deal with this. We believe in this God. So here are some comments I've heard from believers in the midst of deep suffering. One person said this, when they lost a loved one, not only did I lose my loved one, I also lost my best friend, meaning God. Because I had leaned on him in prayers and hopes with promises from him, from his word, all these years. And all of us seemed to be washed away in an instant. 
Here's another comment that makes the point. What makes this suffering so much harder is that I know too much. Meaning, I know God's sovereign. He could have stopped this. Isn't that painful? So what makes it hard for me is I know too much. This tragedy had to at least have been allowed by him. That's, that's, that's heady stuff. And then the last one. Look, if a human being did or was involved with what God has allowed, we would throw them in prison. Those are heavy words. So what is doubt? I told you we were going to go down, so we're going to come back up. What is doubt? And by the way, I have all these, I have all these quotes. Aaron has all these quotes. So I've sent them. If you want them, you don't have to write them down. He can get them to you, okay? What is doubt? Struggling with doubt is a reality believers face in a fallen, perplexing world. We're going to face this, folks. We're going to struggle with this in our life. If you're not struggling now, you're going to struggle at some point. You're going to have to wrestle if you want to be intellectually honest with some of the things that go on when you're trying to figure it out. I used to make direct connections. Oh, man, I was good at making direct connections. Even when I didn't know all the circumstances, I could. But it isn't that way. Struggling with doubt is the reality we face. Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a wonderful statement, right? He said that in Job 1. He didn't say it in 11, 21, or 31. He wrestled. The, the folks that had the fire, they, they're, right away they're under drilling. They're so grateful that God had got them and their children out of the fire. And we are so deeply grateful, Lord, for that. But I promise you tomorrow they're going to have more struggles. It's, it's, it, it's a way, I think it's God's kindness in the moment. And I've seen it. That was Job. It's struggling. It's a reality. Now, here's the most important statement today. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt is not synonymous with unbelief. It is not the same. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. It's important. And I'll give you just an illustration now of the book of Jude. The book of Jude is one chapter long. And in that book, Jude warns against all kinds of evil, blasphemous, and divisive men. But when it comes to those who doubt, those who are wavering, here's what, here's what Jude says. Have mercy on those who doubt. Don't have anything to do with all these other men, but have mercy on those who doubt. Doubt is not a sin. Doubt is wavering between what we believe about God that seems contradicted by what we are experiencing at this moment. You with me? It's a wavering. I believe this about God, but I'm experiencing this. Doubt has not come to a conclusion about God. The heart of doubt is a divided heart. Doubt has its reservations. It hangs back. Doubt is a suspension between faith and unbelief. In West Virginia, our rivers flow a lot faster than yours in the mountains. 
And people build houses sometimes across a river that they don't have money to afford, at least historically. Back in the day, there's not so many now. But when they couldn't get across the stream, they built up, sometimes built a house across the stream. They could get through the stream with their wagons or vehicles when it was low, but when it was high, they couldn't get across. So what they would do is they would put a couple of pillars on this side, a couple of pillars on that side of the stream. They'd run a couple of cables in between, and they'd hang a suspend, suspension bridge. And you walk across what we call them swinging bridges. You've seen them in other countries, and some of you know about swinging bridges in this country. You walk, and you're pretty secure when you start walking. You get out in the mid- middle, and that thing starts swinging, and you're holding on to both sides. Well, doubt is standing in the middle of that swinging bridge with confidence back here and questioning out there, unbeliefs out there, beliefs back here. And the circumstances, the roaring of that water, and let me tell you, when you're over the water and it's moving quickly and you look down, you're swir- you're that's what's going on. The circumstances of life are going all around, and I'm in the middle of this, and I know this is true about God, but it, I sure am experiencing this. I'm not disbelieving God, but I'm really struggling with my faith right now. That's what it is. That's doubt. Unbelief, however, is no longer wavering. Unbelief. Unbelief. In unbelief, the verdict has been decided. The debate is over. It's a willful refusal to believe any longer in God. Okay? It's a deliberate rejection of God's truth. And unbelief is the consequence, it's the consequence of a settled choice. To believe is of one mind, to unbelieve and to disbelieve is to be of another mind. Doubt's not that far. Okay? So doubt's not sin, doubt is not unbelief, but, and this is an important point, doubt while not unbelief, if not dealt with honestly, will lead to unbelief. You got to deal with it. You can't cover it over. You can't act like it's not there. As one person said, doubt is not always fatal, but it is always serious. Doubt, if not answered satisfactory, will eventually lead away from God into sin and unbelief. Doubt will tempt us to ultimately accuse God and malign his character at some point. Now, C.S. Lewis got married later in life to a woman he loved deeply. Four years later, she died of cancer, and he wrote a book. It was really a diary of his experiences grieving the loss of his wife. And he wrote it in in the book, A Grief Observed, Observed This Quote. It gives you an idea of what we're talking about. He said, it's not that I think I'm in danger of ceasing to believe in God. He'd been past that. He was an atheist. He believed there was a God. But in the suffering, he said, I'm not in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But in the midst of his suffering, so this is what God's really like. This is what it means to follow God. This is how he treats his people. He writes, deceive yourself no longer. He didn't lose his faith, by the way. So Oz Guinness writes this. The temptation to doubt does not come into not believing God, but in believing what is not God. The danger is that we press judgment too far, and our speculation creates a distorted picture of God that we cannot continue to believe in good faith. 
Believing the wrong thing is always halfway to believing nothing. Our misrepresentations of God in suffering become so pathetically inadequate or monstrously hideous that to believe in him any longer is unnecessary or repugnant. That's what happens when we have doubt. And we're going to try to figure all this suffering out and we're going to make sure we get the answers. Something's got to give. In the end, if not dealt with honestly, God's the one who's going to be distorted in your mind. Because he's God. He's sovereign. And this happened under his sovereignty. So therefore, what must go is either his sovereignty or his goodness. In the end, doubt will either drive us to distort the image of God into a monster we could never trust. Or shrink him into an image of our own making. And to trust in a God who doesn't really exist. And I've seen both in suffering. I've seen people leave the Orthodox Christian faith. Well, he, he, he doesn't know everything that's going to take place. And he can't stop everything from happening. I've seen that. Or he's this terrible guy. He's this terrible God. You can't really trust him. Look what happens when you trust him. So we're quite in the bottom here, aren't we? I mean, this is real, real life, isn't it? And just so you know, this is a wrestling for me over, and I was a pastor. I've been a pastor. So this happened about five years ago. Wrestled through this for a couple of years. Uh, it, it took time to think and through reading authors and, and studying God's word. And here's what I know about God, but here's certainly what goes on. And I don't understand it. And it really did come down to with my sister because she's one of the most godly women that I know. Could not answer the question why. Let's talk about out of the darkness. How do we get out of this darkness and trust in the name of the Lord? That's the question. Because in all this, let's remember our verse. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let's talk about out of the darkness. In God's kindness, a significant turning point came to me when I read, it was actually the obituary in an obituary of someone else who'd lost a, a young daughter. And it's a quote from God in the Dark by Oz Guinness, which I've also quoted from before here, the third, third chapter of his book. Um, he wrote this, and this is what spoke to me. And I would, I would urge you, I don't know if they're being projected there or not. They're not projected today, I don't think. But I would get these quotes and look at them. Because you have to think through them. They're pretty long. Okay, I, these, I'm using more quotes today than I've ever used in the message. So get those quotes and just think through what's being spoken here. But listen to this. This is what helped me. He said, suffering is the most acute trial that faith can face. And the questions it raises are the sharpest, the most insistent, and the most damaging that faith will meet. Can faith bear the pain and still trust God suspending judgment and resting in the knowledge that God is there, God is good, and God knows best? That's the question. Can we suspend judgment and believe those things? Or will the pain be so great that only meaning, understanding it, will make it endurable so that reason will be pressed further and further and judgments must be made? But if the Christian's faith is to be itself and let God be God at such times, it must suspend judgment. And say, Father, I do not understand you, but I trust in you. He's saying there's got to be times in a Christian's life that you have to suspend judgment on God. For two years I wrestled trying to understand, trying to justify God. And he says, 
you need to suspend judgment. That's where some was help to. Now, we're going to talk about suspending judgment and how we can do that. Because it's not intellectually honest just to say, well, I'm just going to ignore it, right? I'm going to suspend judgment. So when necessary, we must be willing to suspend judgment in the face of inexplicable dis- suffering. Okay? We must be willing to do that. That does not mean denying the emotional pain of the suffering. You can't deny the pain. Denying reality is the mark of make-believe, not living faith. That's not living faith to deny reality. That's, that's bogus. Now, and there's a reason 30 to 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. They're there for us in a fallen, broken world. So we don't deny, deny our emotional pain and our suffering. And the Psalms of lament help us. At the same time, we must reject what can be called keyhole theology. Now, you're going to say, I've never heard of that. Well, here's what keyhole theology is. In the olden days, in the olden houses, my grandmother's house had it. They didn't use, you know, simple locks on the knobs. They had the keyhole, right? And you put in the skeleton key and you locked the door and you pulled the key out and you could see through the keyhole into the inside. And and decades ago, people were indicted for crimes based on keyhole testimony testimony at a hotel someone committed a crime one of the maids looked through the keyhole she saw the people involved she would go and she could testify and through that through that testimony that person could be indicted that works at times but keyhole theology does not work okay keyhole theology is drawing overarching and false conclusions about a whole situation from from some partial information we really do see but we don't have the whole picture. Once we've seen a little, however, it's difficult to resist trying to extrapolate the rest about what God is doing and why from the little bit we see. That's what's hard. We look through and we can see some things about the situation, but we don't ever see the whole thing. But it's really hard not to take the few things we do see and extrapolate the rest from that. Okay, that's the challenge. So in the midst of suffering, there are times we must be willing to suspend making judgment, recognizing we do not know everything as God knows. Job didn't, and neither do we. Okay? And we know the Scriptures. God is not a mere man that we should be, he should be like him. His ways are infinitely higher than our ways. His thoughts and our thoughts, we know that. And even at our, even at our best, we see dimly through a glass. We all agree with these things, Right? At our best, we see dimly through a glass. So we must be honest and admit the known facts at the moment seem to be against God in suffering. But the known facts are never all the facts. We don't know all the facts. Okay? To suspend judgment in the dark is not irrational because we don't know all the facts. But we still have to know about God, don't we? Just because you don't know all the facts out there doesn't answer the questions about his goodness, does it? Okay, I can suspend judgment. I don't know all the facts. That still doesn't, isn't enough to give me trust in God. That just gives me lack of trust in me. You with me? Okay, that's, that's all it does. Okay, I can agree I don't know all the facts. But still, how do I trust in God? Well, to suspend judgment in the dark is not irrational, but only if we know why we trust God enough to suspend judgment now. We've got to know why we trust him enough to suspend judgment. And that's what this verse addresses. Look at it again. Now we'll read the first part of that verse again as well. 
Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? That's going to be key shortly. And then these words, let him who walks in darkness and has no light, you with me? No light. We're talking about someone here who has no answers, does not know why. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light, can't see it all. He's in a He's in a coal mine in southern West Virginia. He cannot see it all. It is dark. It is dark as dark. It's black. Let that person trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. It doesn't just say trust in his God. It says trust in the name. Ah, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. We can suspend judgment in the dark because our God is not merely God. But rather, this God that Isaiah is pointing to, and it will be fulfilled 700 years later, fulfilled is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference. What do you mean? Here's what I mean Our God has proven his infinite and unchangeable goodness to us, his unchanging goodness to us once and for all. Through his son, 2,000 years ago in history, hanging on a cross of Calvary in our place. He did it in time. He did it in space. In our place, condemned he stood. In our place, condemned he stood. He lived the life, before I ever knew him, he lived the life that I should have lived. He died the death that I deserved. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. For a good man, someone might die, Romans says. But who dies for their enemies? That's what he did for us. That's what he did for me. It is an inexplicable expression of God's goodness to his people in time and history. And because of that expression of God through his son, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross in our place makes the truth of God's goodness unassailable. There is an anchor that is placed in history of this world that says the God of the universe is infinitely good that he would send his son to die, God the son to die for a fallen creation. He was rejected of men. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. And our God being that God makes all the difference. Trust in the name of the Lord. Our God is not just not God. In the New Testament, they called him our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference, folks, in the darkness. I can suspend judgment here in this darkness because God has proven his infinite goodness to me there in Christ. When I grew up, I had a, a wonderful Christian father. He died at 91. He's the reason I, I went in, originally went into dentistry so I could work with him, live next to them. I could trust him. And there was times he could ask me to do things and I might not have understood why, but he had proven his goodness to me enough that I didn't question his goodness when he asked me to do something. That's what we're talking about here. In the midst of the darkness here, I have something to look to on the, hanging on the cross there that says, even though I, don't, though I don't see it now, God is infinitely good to me. He is good to me.
Doubts about the Father's goodness are silenced by the Son. How can I be sure that God is there and that God is good is answered satisfactorily only in Jesus Christ. This is true. Any proof of God's existence or argument in favor of his goodness that ends anywhere else in this fallen world is bound to be inconclusive or wrong. You can only go back there to prove satisfactorily and unequivocally the goodness of God in this world. I see through a keyhole in every circumstances around me here, but I can look back there and see clearly God's eternal expression of goodness towards his creation and his fallen people. It shines even in the darkest place. So let the unanswered questions about God's goodness drive you to the place where his goodness is clearly seen. Listen, if you're in the midst of suffering right now and you're saying, I don't understand, I would urge you. Because, listen, one of the things we do when we're suffering is we beat ourselves up and say, what could I have done better? What could I have done more? This is right. It's good to look through situations and say, I maybe could have done better here. I maybe should have done this. I should have done that. My sister looks back. She could say, maybe I should have done this. I should have done this. We can do that until we wear ourselves out. It's fine to question, but at some point, it's time to suspend judgment and say, Lord, I don't understand all this, but I know you're good. Because when I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I know you're good. <coughs> so, so let the unanswered questions about God's goodness drive you to the place where his goodness is clearly seen. Job returned to faith because he, he had a majestic revelation of God. We have a much greater revelation of God through the Son. We have a much greater revelation of his goodness when we see God, the crucified Savior, the Jesus Christ, hanging in our place. And who is Isaiah 50 calling us to? If you look at the whole chapter, if you look at that chapter, he's calling us to trust this Savior. Who is the suffering servant? He's the suffering servant who fully obeyed God. If you look earlier in that chapter, you're going to see in verse 6, he's the one who gave his back to those who strike. He is the one who gave his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard. He is the one who hid not his face from disgrace and spitting. It's all, in, it's all in that chapter 50. He's the one who set his face like a flint, knowing ultimately he would not be put to shame. He's the one who experienced separation and darkness from God in a way that we will never experience because he experienced it in our place. You are never separate, separated from the love of God because of Christ. The Isaiah suffering servant who displayed the inexplicable goodness of God to us through his death on the cross in our place, calls us. He's the very one who calls us, the one who stood in darkness in our place. He's the one calling us to trust in the name of that God. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can trust his goodness. Only the inexplicable love of God explains such inexplicable sacrifice and suffering on our behalf. He suffered, folks, in ways we will never imagine so that we might ultimately not suffer. In eternal hell. Our God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the name that makes all the difference in the midst of suffering. That is the name that allows us to say, Lord, I will suspend judgment and I'll trust your goodness, even when I don't understand. There are facts of life in a fallen world that we will never be able to explain. But we must never explain away. We can't trivialize these things. They're real. Faith, however, can suspend judgment on these questions. For there is no question we cannot leave with God 
if he is the Father of Jesus Christ. So we sing. You sung it. I sing it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, whether it's a frame of blessing, blessing. I don't trust any of that, but wholly lean. I'm glad for it. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I don't trust my strength. I don't trust his frame. I don't trust what I see. Ultimately, you know what I mean. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then we sing this verse. When darkness veils his lovely face, Isaiah 50.10, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds in this life? Oh, no. Within the veil. I mean, our anchor is anchored within the veil. It's beyond this life. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Ellen Vaughn wrote in the epilogue of Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. And she's reading her. Elizabeth Elliot just wrote copious, had copious volumes of, of, of her writings. She just wrote about her life. All throughout her life, she journaled. So she's reading her journals when she's a young lady. And she wrote these words. She's like a, a teenager. She said, turning the thin pages of Elizabeth Elliot's earlier journals... She said, I knew the end of that story. She said, she's writing all this hopeful stuff and all. She said, I knew the end of that story. The youngest, young Elizabeth Elliot writing did not. I wanted to warn her to shout across the decades to prepare for the storm. Get ready. The hurricane is coming. And she writes, it's mercy that none of us knows what's coming. Amen. Then she quoted these words that Elizabeth Elliot had written as well. I love this. I belong to God. He is faithful. His words are true. And transformation, the ultimate springtime, already planted, is coming. Folks, if you're here and you're a Christian, I don't know what suffering you're going through. I don't know what darkness you're experiencing, but I promise you, if you're in Christ, the transformation The autumn of springtime, it's already planted, and it's coming, and you're going to be part of it. May the Lord give you light of Jesus Christ in the midst of dark suffering. Might the Lord cause you to see the name of your God is not merely a God who is sovereign, but who is the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means he is also infinitely good. May the Lord help you to stand in faith and fight doubt that comes, suspending judgment, but doing it because you know the Savior that you serve. Thank you so much for listening today. I pray the Lord will minister to you.